I'm sure you're a little disappointed not to see Pastor Bob up here after that beginning message on Luke. And I was looking forward to that, but he let me know on Sunday night that he had made a prior commitment, so that's why I'm here this morning. In a world that is getting darker and darker, morally and spiritually, which is so very true in our own land, where truth is on the scaffold, and falsehood is on the throne, when people glory in what God condemns, where great effort is being made to blur the distinction between male and female, when wickedness seems to flourish and the light for righteousness is growing dimmer and dimmer, when there is a tramping on the sanctity of human life, when there's conflict in every area of life, including the church, Pastor Bob, because of a previous commitment, as I said, asked me to bring a message either on love or on joy. And I believe the Lord would have me bring a message on joy. But before going to our text, which is in Nehemiah 8, 1 and 10, I would like you to go back memory lane to the times that you have experienced temporal joy as I share a few of my own. And you can guess that because I was a sportsaholic, some of them have to do with sports. I was about nine years old when Dad took us, in, was in the 1930s, when Dad took us to see a baseball game, a Major League Baseball game in Philadelphia, a night game between the New York Yankees and the Philadelphia Athletics. Can you imagine what a joy that was in this? I think I was nine or ten years old at the time. And then I saw one of the greatest players in baseball, Joe DiMaggio. I'll never forget that. Well, then I can remember when I was 12, I was on a baseball team, a softball team, and I got the winning hit uh, to bring it home the winning run. Well, you can imagine what joy that was in this little 12-year-old guy. And then... <clears throat> uh, as a young teenager, or well, this is going away from sports, but as a young teenager, I was in my early teens, I trapped for muskrats on the farm. Can you imagine the joy that I received when I caught a muskrat? That was $1.50. And because money, we didn't have much money in those days. And then uh, I was an actor in two school plays. And then, uh, as I remember, the sportsaholic, I was a Philadelphia fan, the Phillies, the 76ers, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the one, uh, well, there was joy. But I think the greatest joy in sports I ever experienced was in 1941. I was 12 years old, and I came back from the, I was out in the field working, and I came and I turned on the radio. At, I knew it was the All-Star game, and I got the last half of the ninth inning. And the National League was ahead, uh, five to three. And the uh, American, American League hitters, they got, they got one run uh, in that five, four with two outs. And up comes Ted Williams. And on the third pitch, he creamed a hit, a drive up in the upper deck of Briggs Stadium. And I never heard such, such, it lasted on and on and on, such rejoicing that they won the game. The American League won the game 7-5. to five. Well, that's a long bygone area, but I just want just wanted you to think about some of your own joys that you had that were temporal in nature. But then there's some illustrations from the Bible. Ecclesiastes 
Whatever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. My heart rejoiced in all my labor. Then the joy that comes at harvest time is recorded in Isaiah 9.3. That's a special time, especially as a boy. Uh, we didn't have combines in those days. We'd uh, take mules and we'd gather the wheat in bundles and then bring them out. And then there was a day set aside for threshing. And we'd have people come in to help. And it was a great day, a great day of joy, a great day of feasting. And then in Proverbs 23, 24, he that begetteth a wise son shall have joy in him. Proverbs 15, 23, a man shall have joy by the answer of his mouth. Job 38, 7, the morning stars, the, the angels, they sang together and shouted for joy at the creative work of Jehovah. 1 Samuel 18, 6, after David killed Goliath, can you imagine the great outpouring of joy at that the great enemy was decapitated? First Chronicles 12, 40, when David was crowned king over all the tribes of Israel. Can you imagine the temporal joy that they experienced because he was their hero? Ecclesiastes 7, 14, in the days of prosperity, be joyful. But in the days of adversity, consider Temporal joy, dear ones, is so fleeting, as I have found out in my many, many years. Now to our text. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. That was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book, the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both the men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Elkiah and Maaseiah on his right hand and on his left hand Pediah and Mashael and Melkiah and Hesham and Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Benai and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akkab and Shabbathai, Hodijah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Joh. Jezebel, Hanan, and Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershavah, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, the day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said unto them, 
go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And our message today is life's greatest joy. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal God, we need a new stirring of joy in our hearts for all that you've done for us, for your grace that has kept us. And our Father, we need to have that joy renewed so that we can honor thee and count for thy eternal kingdom. And so, our Father, as your word goes forth, it can only produce that joy without, unless you give us your blessed Holy Spirit to guide and direct and prepare our hearts to receive what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Nehemiah was used of the Lord to rebuild the shattered walls of Jerusalem that came about by opposition, came about by neglect, which has been referred to as a type of how the Lord Jesus rebuilds the shattered walls of our lives. Under his leadership, if you have your Bible open, in chapter 2, 17 and 18, Listen to what the people found out about Nehemiah. Chapter 2, 17 and 18. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire? Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, notice, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. He had a great impact upon the people. Then when opposition came, look at 414. Chapter 414. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And all this is to show you what great impact Nehemiah had upon the people. And then in chapter 5, his rebuke of the rulers who were, uh, they were rich, and they'd take advantage of the poor. When they loaned the money, they charged them a great amount of interest. Listen to what they're in, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 11, 12. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that you exact of them. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to his promise. And then, as we go on, when falsely accused by his adversaries in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Then I sent unto him, saying, 
that is, those that were trying to disrupt the building of the wall, there is no such thing done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid at saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, now, now notice these next words. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You want to be joyful and have confidence in the Lord that he is able. Whatever trial you go through, he is able to deliver you. And then one more, Nehemiah, I mean, yeah, 7-3, where he was restoring order to the city that had left going every which way. And I said unto them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch and everyone to be over against his house. The leadership of Nehemiah had such a great effect upon the people as a man of God that they wanted to hear from God. And God's word commands attention. That's our first point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look, uh, and, and, and if you have your Bibles open, look at the, the, uh, look at the verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. Isn't that amazing? The water gate. What comes to your mind when you hear about that? Well, I'll tell you what comes to my mind. In Ephesians 5, 25, and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it from all unrighteousness. In other words, the water, by the washing of water by the word, Psalm 119, verse 9, How shall a man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And all that had understanding, the will was surrendered. How do we know that the will was surrendered? I want you to look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Do you know how long they stood to hear the word of God? At least four hours. At least four hours they stood to hear the reading of the book of the law. And that's how we know that their will was surrendered. They never stayed that long to listen that long. All that had understanding, yes, their will was surrendered. And the timing was the first day of the seventh month, which was the a celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, and it was the beginning of the new year for Israel. And it was to give thanksgiving for God's keeping the grace, for his keeping grace the past year, and for his grace to be upon them in the coming year. And then there's the first mention of the pulpit. What was the purpose for elevation? When, where was God when he spoke to them upon Mount Sinai? He was on top of Mount Sinai, wasn't he, in a cloud of fire. And where were the people down below? It's to elevate the importance of the word of God, and that's why the pulpit was established for when whoever preaches, they're preaching the word of God, and that he's to be elevated above the people, and that's what we learned from Mount Sinai, when he was on top of the mountain there at Mount Sinai, when he spoke and taught to the people there. And the response of all the people when Ezra opened the book in verse 5, look at verse 5. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. I was in Philippines, in Mindanao, and I was uh, uh, preaching at a youth conference. And they allowed, the, they had the youth be part of the, the, the service at that particular time. And there was a little lad about not, not any taller than four feet high. And when he got up and with loud voices, stand up, we're about to read the word of God. And I was so glad that Brother Anthony had to stand up and when he read that psalm. Because when you stand up, you're acknowledging the majesty of God is about to speak. Yes, we're human vessels. We speak the word, but it's his word that should change the heart, should give us a sense of reverence. God is speaking to us through his word. And you'll take notice, after Ezra's prayer, the hearts and heads bowed in worship. I think we've lost a sense of the worship of our God and our Lord. We've become, we've allowed our society, the culture, to so inundate us. We've lost a sense of the reverence and the majesty of God. Secondly, I'd like to talk a little bit about God's word explained, verses 7 and 8. I'll read them again. He said, and also Jeshua and Benai and Sherebiah, Jabin, Akub, Sheba, Bethai, Hodijah, Measiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites caused the pe <coughs> people to understand <coughs> and, and, and the word distinctly and, and it gave them a sense of what they were to, to understand the reading. I want to add uh, uh, a little bit in that. To understand is to distinguish, to consider, to be informed, to be instructed, to teach, and to discern. And to give the sense, as the idea, the intelligence and wisdom of what they were hearing, get a sense of what they were hearing, and to understand it. And the word distinctly means to show, to wound, to sting. Yes, the word stung, we'll find out later how much it stung them. In Job 6.24, it says, teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand where I have erred. Psalm 19.12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. And then listen to these words from Proverbs 2.5 and 9. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with thee and incline thine ear to wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou wilt seek her as for silver, and search for her as for hid treasure, then you shall know the fear of God, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, and out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. And then you'll understand righteousness, you'll understand judgment, and you'll understand equity, and the path of life. And then Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And these words I command thee shall be in thine heart, and ye shall teach them to thy children, 
When thou liest down, when thou sittest in the house, when thou liest down, when thou in the way, when thou risest up, thou shalt teach them every bit of what I have taught you. And then in Leviticus 10, 11, that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken by the hand of Moses. And then Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in your heart in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with your grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then in 1 Timothy 4.8-11, listen to these words. For bodily exercise profit little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now, therefore, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, listen to these next words. These things command and teach. And then Ephesians 4.11. And God hath made some apostles, some evangelists, some prophets, some teachers, and some pastors. I think we've lost a sense of the importance of teaching the word of God. But we have an illustration example here in the, this eighth chapter of Matthew, uh, eighth chapter of Nehemiah how important it is to teach the word of God because we'll see a great impact it had upon them. Now, thirdly, I'd like to speak a little bit. God's word convicts and converts. Look at verse 9. It says, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Jeremiah 23 and 29 says, Thy word is like a hammer that breaks the rock. In other words, the hard heart. And it's like a fire that consumes. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, more sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6.17 the, the word, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Why did the people weep? Because they were convicted of sin. And that was so refreshing when Joe Phillips here the other day, a week, when he got up and testified at the power of the word of God in his life, and you see, I saw him weeping. That's true repentance, but it was the word of God that did it. All sin is against God. Psalm 51.4 says, and David, after his sin with Bathsheba, said, And that which I have done is against thee, O Lord. Against thee, O Lord. And that's why they wept. They were yoked with unbelievers. They intermarried. They married with an uh, uh, unequal yoke. And chapter 5, they were taking advantage of the poor. And they did not tithe. They were in bad shape, and the reading of the word of God convicted them, and that's why they wept. How shabbily. 
They had served the Lord who had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And how shabbily we treat the Lord who has lifted up from a greater bondage than Pharaoh's Egypt from Satan himself. And yet we treat him so shabbily at times. How easy it is to be convicted and not be converted. Yes, these people were converted, but I'd like to talk about the people that are convicted or not converted. How about Judas? He was convicted, but not converted. How about Demas? He was convicted, but he was not converted because he would never, left, uh, never loved, the loved the world more than he did the kingdom of God. And how about when Apostle Paul was uh, 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 speaking to uh, Governor Felix? It was going all right, and then finally... When Paul was speaking about temperance, judgment, and righteousness, that was too much for him. He said, he's trembled. He said, come another day when it's more convenient. But when you're converted, the special worship time is not, when you're converted, the special worship time is not neglected. And I'm afraid by what I have observed in my many years that people have taken worship as, if it's convenient, we'll come, but if not, we won't come. Of inconvenient will not come. We have to have a new sense of what it means to meet with God on the Lord's day. That's real conversion when we when the when the Lord's day is our top priority. They mourned over their sin. When's the last time you mourned over sinning against God? They mourned. They wept. They and then to prove it, they were converted. They separated themselves from the unequal yoke. Look at the confession of sin in 9.2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers that stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. Maybe we, there used to be a time when there was public confession of sin, but no more. But we have to have a greater hatred. I, I told you this before, and I'll say it again. Billy Graham had a tremendous crusade, a tremendous successful crusade as far as the eyes could see. And a reporter said to him, is this... Revival? And Billy Graham, he knew better. He said, no. He said, I expect when there's a real heart revival, I expect to see a new hatred for sin and a new sense of reverence for the majesty and holiness of God. And, and, and to show you how sincere they were, in chapter 10, 29, they embraced, they embraced uh, with an oath to prove their sincerity of a new life. Then in, uh, then in 1031, there was reverence for the Sabbath day. No merchandising on the Sabbath day. And I tell you, dear ones, we've lost a sense. We take the Lord's day just like any other day, except for the morning when we come to church. The Lord's day is a day of worship. That's a day when he conquered death. And it should be a sense of reverence for him the whole day. You see, true conversion brings a new direction in life, and that's what happened to these here in, uh, 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 in the days of Nehemiah. And there's a new vi spiritual vitality. Look at uh, 9 again, 9, 1 to 3. Now, in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. That's revival. That's conversion. 
Romans 8, 6. To be spiritually minded is life and peace, but to be carnally minded is death. When we know, as I said before, true conversion will make the Lord's Day special. It'll be our top priority of the week. It'll be a new attitude about things. We see them as temporal things. They're not that important. Don't let things become so important that you, for, uh, that you uh, turn aside to things that are eternal. It's a life that desires to reflect Christ. Do you know why Christianity is losing its influence upon the world? Because they don't see Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're no longer reflecting Christ like we should. If we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, why don't we reflect him? And then there's, this is a long gone. But there's a discipline, but it's, it brings forth fruit and joy. When we give him, it says in Colossians 1.18, what is that word? I know it as well as I know my own name. The preeminence. Oh, praise his wonderful name. Oh, dear ones, you're looking at an old 94-year-old sinner saved by grace. And when these things are true in my life, I cannot tell you what, what, what difference. It, it, it's a new joy, and I'll share some of that as we go on. Let him have the preeminence in the very area of life. Then you're really living. Then you know what the new life in Christ is all about when you give him the preeminence. And then it's to, be, to have victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Which is the greatest enemy of those three? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Which is the greatest enemy? It's the flesh. And take this from an old sinner saved by grace. It's the flesh, the damnable flesh, that is our greatest enemy. Look what Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And then in uh, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 12, listen what it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Stephen was a very living proof of what we just read because he stood up against all these, uh, the Sanhedrin and all those that hated the Lord. He stood up against them and with his apologetic, he proved how, uh, what the, the scriptures said. And what did they do? They stoned him to death. But he said, listen to these words, Lord, into, my hand, into thy hands I, I, I commit my spirit. And then he said this, and lay not the charge of this sin against them. That is true love, when you can say that about your enemy. We have a tendency to hate our enemies and love our friends, but we're told to love our enemies and love our friends. And then in, in 257, Valerian, the, the Caesar of, of Rome at that time, uh, he took notice that the, the, his empire was weakening. He thought it was because they weren't faithful to the gods of the Roman Empire. So he said, anybody that does not worship God is going to be martyred or going to be killed. Well, Cyprian, he was one of the church fathers. 
he would not cave in. And listen to what he said before they killed him. He said, Dio gratias. Thanks be to God. And like those 21 beheaded at the Coptic Christians that were martyred a couple of years ago, they said, they said Jesus is Lord, before they, they severed their head from, from the neck. In other words, what I'm trying to say all through uh, and today and the day we're living in, there's about 16 of our brethren killed every day on the average. About 16 are killed every day. They love not their lives unto death because they had a living hope in our living Savior. Now, lastly, now this is the part I love. God's word brings joy to the soul. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to make great mirth or mean exceeding joy because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Now verse 17. And all the congregation of them were come again out of the captivity, made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun unto this day had not the children of Israel done so. And they were very great and with very great gladness, again, exceeding joy, the same Greek word. The joy of eternal salvation. I want you to think back when you know the Lord had saved you. Just think back. Think back what it was like to pass from darkness to light, from death to life. And I can remember so well, October 24, 1966, when the Lord saved me. For the first time in my life, I knew what it was like to be loved, and I knew my sins were forgiven. Oh, hallelujah, our sins are forgiven. They're not held against us anymore. We've lost a sense of so great salvation. The joy of sins forgiven. Oh, the forgiveness brings joy, which empowers for service. In Psalm 56, 12, and 13, listen to what it says. Listen to what David said. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When we're forgiven, we have a new life in us to get out and get out the word. The joy of being accepted in Jesus the Beloved, which opens a way to the throne of grace. Oh, my goodness, dear one. If we're a child of God, just think he invites us to come boldly to thy throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What joy that is that we can come boldly to thy throne of grace, whatever the need. I know you say I give personal illustrations. I give enough of them, but my joy is to spend time with the Lord in prayer. That's a great blessing we have. And the joy of being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, it says, <clears throat> giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us fit to be inheritance of the saints in life <clears throat> and who hath delivered us from the Kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And look at Romans 14 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but joy and peace and love in the Holy Spirit. 
the joy of feeding upon God's word. Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Why? Because it quickens us. It makes us alive. And when we are alive in Jesus, we, then we have his life. And I mean, not we have it before, but we have it as life in a greater fullness. God's word is the only food for one's soul. It empowers for service. Acts 20, 24. And the apostle Paul was told about things that were going to come upon him when he go to Jerusalem. He said, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, but that I might finish my course with joy and testify of the gospel of the grace of God. This old sinner saved by grace had to take his car to the garage on Friday. And I got up at 5.30 and never got back to 3.30 in the afternoon. That's a long time for an old man. But it was my great joy. When I went in, I took a stack of gospel tracts about that, my three tracts that the Lord enabled me to write, and I was able to give everyone out, and I never had greater joy People would stop at the stoplight. I'd go up to them and I'd show the truck. I went, open the window. I gave it to them. And what's, I couldn't talk to them personally, but because the Lord made me to write the, the, the tracks, it was like me speaking to them when they read it. What great joy that was when they read so many of them. I can't tell you how many, but it was a lot. That was my joy. That's, that's what's joy in service. I can't, I can't tell you enough how much it is, what joy it is to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords and to know his presence while you're serving him. The power of loving God's word brings an inexpressible joy because you cannot separate God from his word. And why Job said, I've esteemed thy words more greater than my necessary food. Why? Because Jesus is the word. And why the joy of the Lord is our greatest joy? Because he is the word. And when we take it in, we are taking him in. It was the joy of the Lord. The Moravian brothers that led John Wesley to a state of true conversion. And you know, John, George Miller, he would not begin to preach until he knew the joy and the happiness of the Lord in his soul. Now, this next part. I didn't share this yet, but I, I want to now. Some of you are going through trials, but listen to this. That the trial of your faith being more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be uh, tried with fire, that you might be found uh, uh, pleasing and honor uh, to the appearing of our Lord Jesus. But notice this next word, whom having not seen you love, and though you see him not, yet rejoice, yet believing, and you have joy unspeakable. And then 1 Peter 4, 13, concerning a fire trial, rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. I'm an old sinner saved by grace, but I've never known the joy of the Lord like I do now. Is that to impress you? No. It's to give God the glory because it doesn't matter how old you get, you can have the older you get, the more joy you can have. And I'll give you a testimony what uh, someone who don't have joy is. No, I, I don't want to worry, but I'd like to give a little, a little application. 
There was an article that I read this week. It says, where is happiness and joy? Well, it's not an unbelief. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type, and he wrote, I wish I had never been born. There was Lord Byron. He lived a life of pleasure as few as, as few have lived it. And then he says this, the worm, the canker, grief are mine alone. Not money. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of that. And when dying, he said, I suppose I'm the most miserable man in all the earth. It's not a position. Lord Biggenfield, he was a great man of uh, 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 Great Britain. He enjoyed more than his share of both fame and position. He wrote, notice, youth a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. And I say, that's a damnable lie because I've never been more joyful and I'm old as, uh, I'm as old as you want to be. And not in military glory. Alexander the Great, he conquered the known world in his day. Having done so, he wept in his tent because he said there were no more worlds to conquer, and he died in his drunkenness. Question, then. Well, then where is joy and happiness to be found? In Christ alone. Oh, I can't say that enough. To know the joy of the Lord is to live. I want, I want you to have it. Are you experiencing that joy? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord this morning? Be honest with yourself. Are you? How much is worship, Bible study, prayer? Is it duty or joy? Let me repeat that. How much is worship and Bible study and prayer? Is it duty or is it joy? Be honest with yourself. With Nehemiah, 12 times he prayed to the Lord. He did not, did not he say, the joy of the Lord is your strength? Spend time with the Lord in prayer. And his presence is fullness of joy. And I, I, I want to speak about that right now. Psalm 1611 says <clears throat> that he will not suffer Thy holy one to see corruption. In his presence is fullness of joy. And now thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I like to talk about in his presence is fullness of joy. I told you this before. I'm going to tell you it again. It's so wonderful. It was my first year, first pastorate. And it took me two hours to get there to the church and two hours to get back home. And this one time, I'd always take books, books, books to read, read, read. And this time, I said, no, I'm just going to focus on my Lord. And after a while, his presence became so powerful, so powerful, that I, said, I stood up and said, nothing else matters. Oh, the joy of his presence. Oh, to know the joy of his presence, nothing else matters. That's the joy of the Lord. And you, we all can have it. We all can have it. Does the gospel still bring joy to your heart when you feed upon it and give it out? Luke 2.10. Yes, the angel appeared. The angel appeared. 
The angel appeared uh, to the, those shepherds on the Judean hillside, and they were afraid, and he says, fear not. Listen when he says, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let us be filled with joy at who the Lord is and who he is to us and who he, what he has planned for us. I want you to listen to what Harry Iron said of the last century. He said, the day when it was a great joy to give out the blessed gospel and give a testimony for God is soon going to be gone. The day we're living in is getting darker and darker, but regardless how dark the day and night, we can still have the joy of the Lord, life's greatest joy. John 15, 10, 11, our Lord, the night before he was crucified, what did he, he talked about joy. He said, if you, he said to his disciples, if you keep my word, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's love and abide in his love. And then he said this, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Just think of our Savior and his humanity is talking about joy the night before he was to be crucified. Listen again to the words of Harry Ironside. Renounce all the policy of this age. Grasp the book of God. Trust the spirit who wrote its pages. Fight with this weapon only and always. Cease to amuse and seek to arouse. Give up trying to please men. Rather, warn and plead and entreat those who feel the waters of eternity creeping upon them, that they too might know the joy of the Lord. In closing, I would like to read to you a writing by Anna Lynn Woodworth. Before I, I read that, I want to talk to you about an old pastor that I knew. He had a sign, a long sign on his deck, said, perhaps today, perhaps today, are you ready to meet the Lord? Is the joy of the Lord real to you? Now listen to what this dear sister wrote. Perhaps today our Lord will come to bear us to our much-loved home. Before the evening shadows fall may sound the longed-for clarion call. Then out of sorrow, tears, and strife we'll rise to realms of joy and life. Perhaps today will be the last, and time shall be forever past. Our light afflictions shall be o'er, then glory, glory evermore. These days of toil and pain will cease, and faithful workers rest in peace. Perhaps today mine eyes shall see the Lamb of God who died for me. Or, oh, nothing else will matter then. Ah, if unto him I faithful been. Live for that day, O soul of mine, and joy eternal shall be thine life's greatest joy. Praise his wonderful, wonderful, 
holy name. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for the joy of the Lord. Oh, thank you that it's so real. Thank you that let us not let the things of this life beat us down. Let not situations beat us down. No, let the joy of the Lord always available for us. Let it be our strength. Let it be our joy. Let the joy of the Lord reflect Christ in us, the hope of glory. May your word not return void as we pray these mercies through Christ our Lord. In his wonderful name, amen.